It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO Mike Holenstein. Mike joined the roster at iBobs in July of 2016. As VP of Direct, he was responsible for expanding the direct-to-consumer business, which includes e-commerce and catalog. In December of 17, Mike was named CEO and continues to utilize his collaborative style and passion for building iBob's unique brand to drive the business forward. Prior to joining iBob's, Mike was Vice President Merchandising for Sportsman's Guide, and previously to that, he led the direct purchase division at GNK Services, and from 2000 to 2008, he helped build the Duluth Trading Company business as Vice President of Product Development. Mike Hollenstein, welcome into the corner office. Thank you very much, Brent, for the opportunity. Oh, this is great. Well, listen, it's terrific to connect with you on Thanksgiving week. Uh, of course, our listeners won't hear this until sometime in February, but uh, we really appreciate you carving out some time before you carve out the turkey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we like to always start a little bit with the early years, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about you know, where you grew up and what your early family life was like. Absolutely. So I grew up about 30 miles west of Milwaukee in a small town called Pewaukee. And ah. uh, I grew up in a about a hundred year old farmhouse in the middle of cornfields, um, and really, really had a great upbringing. You know, obviously in the early days, it was uh, you know we were we weren't by any means uh, in a tough spot in terms of finances, but we we didn't have a lot, and we spent a lot of time. Were your parents farmers? I mean, did they work the farm? They weren't. No, no. It was actually so we lived in this old farmhouse uh, that was once a farm. But my parents were were not farmers. What did they do? What was their what were their professions? Yeah, so in the early days, my mom was actually a shorthand uh, shorthand teacher, so she taught how to write shorthand. And then um, my father, my dad was actually a, a, a ticket service agent for at the time it was called North Central, and then uh, Republic Airlines, and then ultimately Northwest uh, in Milwaukee. Got it. Got it. So he commuted in every day or, or longer flights, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, he did. He did. Brothers and sisters? Yeah, I had an older sister. She's four years older than I am. And, um, you know, tell me a little bit about how either your sister and or your parents influenced you growing up. What were some of those early lessons uh, and things that you took away from your childhood? Yeah, I would say that our childhood uh, childhoods were really focused on hard work. Uh, we started working early. In our lives, um, I spent a lot of time. Oh, 
uh, working at uh, as a caddy when I was about 11 years old. And after that, I, I worked at a, a, a gun club that was very close to us, pulling skeet and trap, and also worked around the, the house a lot. So we always had our chores. And, um, you know, like I said, we didn't have a whole lot of, of toys and, and stuff in the early years, um, but we definitely spent a lot of time making fun uh, with things that we had outside. Kind of a rural area were you in or, you know, the old country schoolhouse or did you commute into the city for school? No, we, we had a, went to a very small school, very good school, but it was not a, um, it was not a big school by any means. It was, a, I think there were maybe 150 kids in my class um, in high school. So we, uh, it was a smaller school. Um, and I would, again, wouldn't say it was rural, but it, as most of these bigger cities have grown over the years, uh, it's really changed today. My parents still live in the same house that I grew up in, but Milwaukee has kind of consumed that whole area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The suburbs become the, uh, the the city. Were you a good student in school, Mike? I was. Um, I would say I was a, a good B plus, A minus uh, student in in school, and it was you know it was not the it wasn't I wasn't I didn't have the luxury of being a student that could just kind of skate by. A lot of it came from hard work and. Um, one of the things I also wanted to, to share is, you know, my parents obviously were very, very hard workers and ultimately became entrepreneurs. Um, as I got older, my, my mother uh, bought a travel agency, believe it or not. So awesome. Just recently retired. But um, so I got the bug for entrepreneurship from her. <laughs> early on. Yeah, very yeah. early on. Cool. Any other early influences in your life? You know, any coaches or specific teachers that you remember uh, that, uh, you know, kind of helped steer your way? Yeah, I would say there were there were many. I, I had the good fortune of, of interacting with a lot of great people, both in school and through sports. I played uh, basketball uh, mainly, mm-hmm. also uh, played some golf. But I would tell you that I, I was very fortunate to have great coaches Never were we the best team, but um, I think I learned a lot of a lot of great life lessons through the coaches that I had. Yeah, so you you know it sounds like you were involved with sports and a few other things. Tell me a little bit about you know some of those influencers there, uh, coaches. You said that you you know had a particular influence on you. Um, you know what were some of those early lessons that you might have gotten from one of your basketball coaches? Yeah, it's I would tell you that it all was really focused on teamwork and. I had the opportunity to be a captain of the, of the basketball team. And he, you know, in his own way, taught me a lot of really good skills around leading a, a group of peers, um, which I've been able to translate into in my career later. Um, in many of my jobs, I've had the opportunity to gain more responsibility over time and ultimately had a number of peers reporting into me, which is always an interesting challenge. And I think a lot of the things I learned early on in my my uh life, not only in high school, but also in college with some of the jobs I had. Uh, managing that interesting dynamic is is really important. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, I think he, he started the, the training of for me back then, and um, it was never really about winning, but it was, it was about focusing on fundamental skills, things that help you become better as a team and an individual. And I, I would say that that's really what he helped me with. And rather than focusing on the outcome, focusing on the how you get to that outcome. How you play the game. Yeah, absolutely. What positions you play, Mike? 
Um, you know, I, I played a lot of positions. We were, like I said, we were not a great team, so I, I kind of rotated around, but uh, I spent most of my time playing a forward position. What about uh, entrepreneurial things? You'd mentioned that uh, mom had started a travel agent. Uh, you know, did you have the ubiquitous paper route, uh, you know, selling Christmas cards or, you know, other types of stuff that generated uh, entrepreneurial skills at that early age? I think so. I, um, you know, I, like I said, I, I, we were expected to work very early on and I, uh, I spent a lot of time, like I said, caddying and then ultimately the gun club. But I think where my, my kind of the salesmanship and entrepreneurial spirit really took place or kind of was cast was, uh, at a, a shoe store. So I was a shoe salesman, right. uh, in <laughs> high school <laughs> and, uh, you know, we got a dollar a pair. And nice. I, I have very fond memories of those days where, um, you know, it was such a compliment to have people come back and, and seek you out, even though I only worked a few days a week. And because, you know, you, you would think that selling shoes is not that important, but um, it was wonderful to build a build a client base of people that appreciated what we were doing. So that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. What about, the, you know, part time jobs during college or, you know, later in high school? Did you you know do other types of things to either support your education or, um, you know, the, the, those odd summer jobs to save up money for tuition? I think I, like many of the listeners, did pretty much anything and everything to <laughs> scrape together the funds to uh, to not only pay for college or and and also just expenses. But um, I actually, so it's interesting. I I paid for. I had always had an interest in aviation and flying. You know, my, my, like I said, my dad worked for the airlines as a, a ticket agent, and I started flying when I was sixteen. Actually, oh, that's a, awesome! As cool. a private pilot and. Yeah. That's really what drove me in terms when I was working. I, I paid for, um, you know, the instruction and the, the hours. And um, so I think, you know, ultimately that I had it, always had a goal for why I was working. Um, later in life, it became obviously about funding my, my college and, and spending money. Um, but in college, I actually did a number of jobs in the, in the summer, you know, everything from delivering pizzas to working in a warehouse to right, right. delivering food and anything and everything. But I also had the good fortune of having a number of internships uh, starting the uh, summer after my sophomore year. Um, and I also was a basketball official in, in high school for rec basketball, and ultimately became a su- supervisor. So again, another example of when I, um, I had the opportunity to be an official, then became a supervisor, and then had to lead a group of people that were formerly my peers, um, which really was really helpful in my in my career. Awesome. Did mom and dad help towards tuition, or were you pretty much on your own? They helped toward tuition. Absolutely, they helped. Um, but I think they, you know, to their credit, they always felt like I had to participate in it. They, right. Sure. They really Skin in uh, the game. That's exactly <laughs> right. Well said. Well said. <laughs> That's great. What was that first job you took out of college? The first full-time job anyway. Yeah. So I worked for a company called the Menasha Corporation and they're a Wisconsin-based at the time, a privately held company. And I was recruited into one of their training programs and worked for a, a small division called Treyx, which was in the food service supply business. And I was, I was tasked with uh, promoting this uh, merchandiser uh, solution called the Maximizer across the country in restaurant supply stores. So the sales team would go out or I would join them and, and then we'd get their commitment to 
install this merchandising um, system. And then I would go out and set it up and help them hopefully have success with it. It was a great experience because there was a lot of autonomy. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that time, not only because the company was really great, but also my, my position allowed me to have a lot of autonomy. Did you have uh, leadership responsibilities early on, either in that job or the one that followed? I did not, not directly, I would say. Um, but my first leadership opportunity really happened when I joined Duluth Trading. Um, again, as you know, kind of the story goes, I was the product manager there and then ultimately became uh, the director of, of product development and merchandising. Was that the first time you started managing people? That was. That was the first time. Yeah. What were some of the earliest leadership lessons you learned from, you know, bosses or mentors, uh, good and bad? You know, yeah. I, I got to remember looking back, some of the some of the lessons I learned were like, that's not the way to behave. <laughs> you know, and I say this a lot, uh, Brant, I, 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 there are many aspects to my early career that I look back at as what I learned not to do more so than I learned what to do. Absolutely. And um, I would tell you that there things I learned, there are a ton. Um, but a lot of them revolve around setting clear expectations and, and really strong communication. How do you, and then I would say um, also keeping things as simple as possible. Uh, oftentimes I think in business, we overcomplicate things and there is so much elegance and simplicity versus, um, you know, it's overcomplicated a hundred objectives and give me a status update on all hundred. We really try to keep things simple here at iBobs. Um, because uh, we want to spend the majority of our time figuring out how to better serve our customers than uh, really focusing on minute details. Uh, so I would say that if you were to ask me what I learned most would be um, two things. Really keep things simple. Um, and while you keep them simple, communicate them effectively. And always begin with the end in mind. You know, I, I think that that is... That is something that you can apply in any position. Uh, I think we all get into the day-to-day -day vortex, get sucked into the day-to-day -day vortex, whereas um, you get, you know, it's flavor of the day and, and you lose sight of what are we really doing here? And what does the end state look like? And that's really, as I've got, as I've transitioned into the CEO job, uh, that is has become my focus along with uh, really helping people achieve more than they ever thought they could. You know, it's kind of crystallized in my brain what my role here is, and it's really those two things, is really setting the ultimate direction, what is the end game, and um, really helping people achieve more than they ever they thought they could because once you've done that, I think you gain a um, high level of engagement from the people. Awesome. You know, you've mentioned something that we've heard from a lot of CEOs, and that's, you know, behaviors that I saw and knew I never would repeat again. Right, <laughs> because, exactly. You know, it, the way it made me feel or whatever. And without mentioning any names, what would you say was one of the worst lessons you've learned from a previous boss? I would say inconsistently inconsistent. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, there is a, a lot there's a lot of things going on when you're CEO of any company, no matter how big or small, and it can become overwhelming. And I think a lot of times, well, and really in any capacity as a manager, right, you're dealing with a lot of interpersonal things, you're dealing with a lot of business issues. And oftentimes, uh, I think people lose sight of being the, the benefit of being consistent. 
uh, and not wavering and putting the effort into determining what they need to be consistent on. And um, probably the, the biggest challenge or the, the most important thing I've learned from a previous leader that I worked for was let's, let's try not to be inconsistent. Let's try to be, let's try to have strong commitment to our well thought through objectives. Um, and um, let's not make it flavor of the day. How would you say your leadership styles evolved over time, Mike? Uh, greatly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I look back at myself uh, in my first leadership position with uh, some embarrassment, I think. I, uh, <laughs> I think <laughs> That's many, a common trait. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I think a, man, a lot of managers do. I, I will tell you that I, when I became a manager, I thought I knew a lot more than I did. Kind of like before I was a parent, I thought I knew a lot more about parenting than I actually do today. Um, but I would tell you that I thought everybody should act the way that I acted, should have the same behavior, should do the things that they do the same way I did. And I had the good fortune of hiring some wonderful people early in my career um, at Duluth Trading as we grew that business. And I look back at it and thought, now look at it and say, wow, we could have done so much more if I would have been more open to different styles and not so um, focused on, on people doing things the way that I did them. So I think that's really been an important um, realization for me. And I would also tell you that the other thing I learned over that time is that, you know what, I have a lot of weaknesses and understanding and embracing those weaknesses and talking about them openly um, is really critical. You know, when you get into a leadership position, you don't want, you want there to be a bit of a facade that you know exactly what to do. And uh, I think that was a, one of my bigger failures as well, trying to have everybody think that I was, uh, you know, try to portray the fact that I had everything under control when in reality. When did you learn that a cookie cutter approach doesn't work with all people? <laughs> uh, probably <laughs> probably <laughs> as we went from, you know, one or two people in our, our merchandising department to four or five. And I, I would tell you that I also benefited from having great people working with me um, that I hired that were very willing to share feedback. And that's become a really critical part of my uh, recruiting process throughout my career that it's one of my standard questions. And it is, give me an example of a time when you gave your leader good feedback that was contrary to what they believed or what they they thought was right. And it's, um, you know, I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people that would say the same thing. It, it can be tough in this position as CEO or really any leader job because it's your people are oftentimes are going to tell you what they think you want to hear, not what you need to hear. And um, I, early on in my career, I had a lot of good feet. I had good people that were willing to give me exceptional feedback on, um, on what I could do better. And that was great. You know, one of the things that we do um, as a matter of course with our executive placements, of course, professional reference checking. And one of the questions I always like to ask is, you know, tell me about a time where this manager really stood up for what he or she believed in and, you know, not, not necessarily followed the track of their manager or someone else in the organization. And, and it's always revealing, uh, particularly if this has been someone that, you know, formally supervised this executive, uh, 
in in what they have to say in that area uh, because that's a that's a real true north type of a response you know if you get someone that you know is always you know the yes man or the yes woman or you know kind of always follows the flow you know they're probably got some limitations in terms of their leadership capabilities whereas if folks kind of lay down the law and you know really fight for what they believe in it it's a character issue I completely agree and um, you know the, and this is another thing I share with all the people on my team. The only way I'm going to get better is if they share really good feedback for me uh, or to me directly. Because if I'm doing something that doesn't feel right, probably not because I, I know that I'm doing something that doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and that's been that's been great. I think it you, when you empower your people to speak freely with complete openness, that's when change happens. That's when um, when you've given them permission to bring a different point of view, that's when you can have innovation um, at a company and that's when you can really move a business forward. And um, that's been critical for me. It's still hard for people, no doubt about it. Um, but I think when you openly talk about it, uh, that's when you get this really complete openness that benefits any and all companies. Mike, how do you decide if it's time to micromanage or, or when to stay out of someone's sandbox? You know, yeah, I'll go back to your earlier question. I The jobs I loved the most were the ones where I had autonomy to do the job and I wasn't micromanaged. I was given good guardrails. So I always start from there and I really hire people that want autonomy. And I can share some of the, the tools we use um, later on. But um, what I tell people is if I'm in the details, there, are, there is an issue. Something is not going well. But by design, I'm not going to be in the details. I'm going to set high-level, simple objectives. We're going to align around what needs to be done in their functional areas. And I'm going to stay out of it. I do have weekly touch bases, but those are simply focused on the details um, and the objectives, the, focused on the objectives and the status against those objectives. Um, if I'm getting into the details, that would mean that we're not achieving at the level we need to achieve on in each individual area. And that that's really what I do. I'm not somebody that is in the details because if I were to be for the people that we've hired, it would not go well. It would, they're just not suited for that. But when there are issues we're not achieving, then I get into details. Mike, as we covered in your bio at the beginning of the podcast, uh, we know that you came in as uh, a VP of Direct. So I assume you weren't a founder of the company. Is that correct? I was not. Uh, Julie Julie Allenson founded the company about eighteen years ago. Got it. Got it. So you elevated to the CEO position. You know, what are your thoughts about building a company culture, particularly given that you know you're a mid-sized company, but you know not a founder, um, and obviously inherited the role from someone else. I'm a huge believer in culture, uh, and we've invested a significant amount in culture uh, over the last year that I've been in this role. And to me, it starts with core values. Your your core values ultimately dictate your um, your your culture and what you believe in. So we started from a place um, with getting everybody together was facilitated by a third party. And we ultimately came up with our core values as a team, uh, which all, which really was important to me to make sure that we were aligned as a team around them. And it didn't come from just the executive team. It truly was uh, all company um, 
effort. And we now have core values that we all believe in and hold each other accountable to. Now, this was done after you were promoted uh, to CEO. Well, which is interesting. So this is an interesting story. Um, so Julie Allenson founded the company. I was introduced to her shortly after the company was purchased by Norwest Equity Partners, a private equity firm, when she was ultimately had decided to hire a CEO to replace her. Uh, they decided to go with somebody else at that time other than me. So I, I ultimately just helped Julie kind of with her direct business. And they hired you were another. inside the company already. I was not. I was oh, not. you were not? No. So I actually interviewed for the CEO job the first time around. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And um, at the time, there was a bit of a different strategy than what we have today. And they wanted to have somebody that had much more wholesale experience than I did. Totally understand. But I helped Julie with her direct business as a favor. Um, and ultimately, they hired another individual who uh, then uh, wanted to meet with me to talk about the whole direct plan. And he decided to hire me on as the leader of direct. So kind of an interesting story on how I ended up at. at so long story, sorry. Uh, I wanted to give you that as a kind of a, a, yeah, a little bit of background. But ultimately what happened is we started working on this uh, about eight months before I became CEO. It was something that was really critical and, and I felt it was very critical and I was a big uh, proponent of it, but we never implemented it. So ultimately we sat here with, with five core values that the team had come up, uh, that had developed and they just sat out there and never were fully embedded. So I became CEO on December 11th and shortly thereafter, uh, maybe two weeks later, we had a big effort uh, to push them out. And we have a lot of different activities that we use here to uh, promote our core values. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. Um, I've always found that with core values, a lot of people will get them on a, a business card size uh, card. They'll put it in their wallet and they'll remember it when they change their wallet. Uh, so we post them everywhere in the building. And then we have this wall with a cork board with the um, core value above it and then a card so that when you see this core value in action, that you write it down, the person's name and what you witnessed, and you put it on the cork board. So we've been doing that since the first week in January, and we've cleaned that board off, I think five times, or those five boards off five times. And we talk about our core values on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. Every monthly meeting we have, I talk about our core values. If you have to put the effort in, if you believe in the core values, to make sure everybody is really thinking about them on a day-to-day -day basis. So, and I, again, core values equal culture. And um, so I believe that we have to live up to our core values to have the culture. We have to use our core values to hire, um, you know, in the hiring process. And I think we've seen some really good progress there as an organization, um, you know, we could validate that with some people that, that work here, but I, I think they would tell you that it's it's critical for our long-term success um, to live to our, our core values. What, what do you think is most unusual or, or perhaps unique about your culture at IBOBS? I would tell you that uh, we are focused on being true and authentic, being who we are. We don't, we try to maintain a high level of authenticity within our, within our company because a big part of our brand positioning is related to helping people who wear our glasses be true and authentic to themselves. Our big 
our core, our brand ethos really is uh, you supply the personality. All we do is frame it. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. And we see it on a day-to-day basis with our customers that come into our store here at corporate headquarters or down in at their Florida Mall in Florida or Mall of America here in Minneapolis. It's amazing how it, it can transit. You know, you put a pair of glasses on somebody's face and it really truly helps them become more true and authentic to their personality. And my thing is Plus they can see better with them all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's more what it is. Uh, it does help actually, to yeah, it does help to clarify things, right? Spending less really time trying to focus and more time on the personality, right? Um, but I always say, how could we be promoting true and authentic to our customers if we aren't true and authentic inside our building? So I would tell you that that's something that's wonderful and something I really believe in. And and it's something that frustrated me candidly at other companies I work for where there's this political nature and there's a lack of sharing and openness. And uh, I am uh, very, very focused on creating an, an open environment. Um, and letting people be who they truly are. One of our core values is be yourself and welcome others, for example. Well, I know you've hired a good, you know, marketing and PR firm who reached out to us uh, for you on this interview. Um, so you're, you're obviously growing and doing well and hiring people. You know, what do you look for, Mike, when you're making bets on the people you invest in? Yeah, it's, it's again, something that's evolved over time. And I have found that it's, absolutely critical that you invest time in finding people. I'll give you an example. We had an open vice president of marketing position since April, and I, I just filled it. And I, I talked personally talked to over 80 people. Wow. And a lot of really wonderful people, but none of them were right for the job for different reasons. Did you use a recruiter for that just out of curiosity or were you, did you do that on your own? We did. Uh, but again, you know, one of the things that we've been really great at, um, is just networking. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, we had a great, we had a very good executive recruiter, but by chance I found this individual through my networking. Oh, really? Outside of that? Interesting. It just outside. Yeah, it was just, again, it was just kind of a random thing. So I would tell you that I look for a couple things. I look for tenacity. I look for grit. You know, those two things are really work ethic, right? So really it's a, a work ethic can I do I really get a sense because really at the end of the day we're a seven or 18 year old startup and we need that that tenacity and grit I look for people who are autonomous uh, that really focus on using their wanting to own something and being accountable to the the outcome and that's not just in leadership positions that's across the organization um, a history of success so regardless of what what um, capacity they're in? Have they been successful? Can they really articulate uh, success? Have they been promoted or given more responsibility over time? And then, you know, it's probably harkens back to, again, my perspective on things, but I want somebody that's competitive. Somebody that looks at our competitors and says, you know what, we can beat them. And um, so I'd say that those are, those are the areas that I I really focus on when looking for people here at, at IMOPS. You know, I'm sure you get involved deeply with interview process, particularly with direct reports. Do you, do you interview down the line as well? In other words, let's say if your VP of marketing now is bringing in a marketing manager or a director or someone in charge of e-commerce, would you get involved in that interview? 
Yeah, I believe in the, a two-step process. So I obviously interview the people that report to me, and I, I do interview the people that report to them. In that second scenario, you know, you probably don't go quite as deep, again, uh, giving the autonomy to the people that <laughs> right, are building out their own team. But, you know, if you, if you had five or 10 minutes to, to interview someone, you know, two steps down the line, wh- wh- what do you focus in on? What, you know, where of those various areas, what do, you, what do you think is most important in terms of finding out about them as part of your interview process? You bet. So um, we are, I was tasked with uh, implementing something called top grading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We we use that, we're starting to use it here. I use it for all my interviews uh, and it's a really involved long, you know, there's maybe 10 pages of questions and I, I pick and choose accordingly. And then we also use a culture index personality profile that helps us you know, ultimately determine does a person meet the requirements of the position, which we they actually take an assessment as they part do. of that. Yeah, they good, do. excellent. Um, it obviously is a tool we use. It's not a we don't. It doesn't determine whether or not they get an interview. It, it has weight. It does exactly. So we use those two things. Now, you know, your question. I, I will have reviewed the culture index before I walk into the room, and let's say I only have five minutes with that individual. My standard question really is: Tell me about the most important personal accomplishment you've ever had. Tell me about an accomplishment, whether it's at work or outside of work. And that normally tells me a lot because it'll tell me, did they, how, you know, did they have the ability to communicate what it was? And then more importantly, how they achieved it. So if they're- And, they're, and their level of passion about it as well. Exactly. Which you exactly. should be able to see. Yeah. So that's, that's one of my standard questions that I can then probe into for, you know, Ultimately, if they have a really good answer, I can ask a lot of questions that are around that. Kind of, how did you get there? What failures did you have in the process? Um, and, and again, gets back to what I'm looking for in that person: the tenacity, grit, a history of success. Mike, you've been very generous with your time, and we're just about out of it. But we always like to ask the CEOs who join the program. You know, to those that are listening, many of which uh, are CEOs themselves, but also those that aspire to get there, and uh, perhaps to that latter group, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone who, you know, has their eyes on their own corner office? Yeah, you bet. So I I would say it gets back to something I said earlier, begin with the end in mind. Um, I have had a goal in my, I can probably go back to maybe even high school. My goal was to lead a company someday, whether it was my own that I started or another company in it. I feel like that has been my consistent, I've kind of worked toward that for, or since that time. So goal setting really works. And, you know, I, I coach my daughter's basketball team and even at that level. So um, I would highly recommend that they personally set their own goals. And then maybe more importantly, help their team set goals because when the team has success, so do you. Uh, big believer in setting goals and then uh, working toward achieving those. Um, a lot of it has to do with hard work. <laughs> yeah. And I would tell you that that's not a given. Uh, if you really want to get into the, the corner office, working incredibly hard to get there is kind of the price of entry. And more, maybe more importantly, once you get there, you have to maintain that level of effort and uh, tenacity. Um and then I, the last thing I would say, well, there's two, really two other things that I'd say, constantly learning. Uh, you know, this the marketplace is evolving by the moment, by the second, and staying uh, a 
aware of what's going on out there, whether it's through your network or being involved with a, a broader audience, uh, a group, or it's reading. Uh, I spent a lot of time reading. And then the last thing I would say is get comfortable with your weaknesses. Know what they are, embrace them, uh, be aware of them, uh, and not and don't don't try to push them down, but really be aware of them and work on them. And then communicate them. Tell your team. I tell my team all the time. I here are my weaknesses. That pretty much you knew this already, <laughs> but here are my here are my weaknesses, and please help me work on them. Well, Mike Holenstein, thank you so much. We really very much appreciate you sharing your journey into the corner office and your uh, leadership and management experiences. And best of luck as you continue to grow iBob. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.